Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation. And some of you might remember that I used to be Chief Executive of the RSA. So it's an enormous pleasure to pop back up on the RSA stage for what I'm told is the final RSA event 2021. Do follow RSA events on Twitter, by the way, and join the mailing list to be notified for the exciting new 2022 event series that's just out uh, to be announced. So thank you for joining us today. We're going to be reflecting on, well, it's been a truly extraordinary year, and that was before Max Verstappen beat Lewis Hamilton. Now, we've got a fantastic panel of commentators and journalists who've taken the time to speak with us today. What a panel it is. We're joined by a crack team of journalists, my old friend Ian Leslie, Hardeep Masaru, and Rosamund Irwin. I'll introduce them individually in a little bit, but a very big welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us. So, well, I think it's a bit of an understatement, isn't it, to say that 2021 has provided us with a lot of material. Everything from mass global vaccination programmes and COP26 to space tourism and allegedly illegal parties at number 10. But what were the major news events that shaped the year and what can we learn from 2021, apart from the fact that prediction seems useless? Are we any further forward on global emergencies like climate change and inequality? Or has COVID seen our goals become more distant and our problems more entrenched? Perhaps even the most important events of the year, well, there's still 17 days to go. Perhaps the most important events are yet to come. Omicron, the PM under pressure, tanks massing on the borders of the Ukraine. Wow, what a lot to talk about. So first, we're going to hear from Ros Irwin. Ros is media editor of the Sunday Times. She was previously the Brexit correspondent for the paper and has broken stories, including the Yellowhammer leak of papers about a no-deal Brexit and the Martin Bashir scandal at the BBC. She was a London Evening Standard senior feature editor for many years and has published and broadcast for an enormous range of major news organisations. So, Ros, thank you for joining us today. What, for you, were the highs or lows of 2021? I'm afraid mine uh, that I've selected are all really lows. Um, It's not a very cheery list. So um, the first story that I thought is one of the most important stories of this year is the English Channel disaster, obviously a tragic loss of life, incredibly um, devastating um, for the people's families, Um, but also something that tells us quite a lot um, about broader political themes. So uh, the challenge of immigration and and, um, uh, actually obviously Brexit comes in here too, um, because uh, the relations between France and the UK are part of the course of this um, and uh, the sort of devastating uh, human loss gets very rapidly and, and rather, you know, un- unedifyingly um, overtaken by this um, sort of spat between the French and the English. Um, so that, that that would be my first one that, that hopefully we will talk about more broadly, because obviously immigration is going to be one of the challenges um, and, and not just related to, to people, um, you know, there will obviously be climate change pressures there um, in the future. Um, so that, that was my first depressing story. Um, less depressing, I think, the vaccine rollout, but um, 
this is a very UK focused um, list. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about issues more broadly. But I, I think one of the things that, that we're seeing now is the result uh, with this new variant, the Omicron variant, we're seeing the result of that vaccine inequality and people who know much more about these things than I do. Uh, I'm not obviously a scientist um, or a doctor, but um, there's been a lot of talk that part of the reason that we are susceptible to new variants is this inequality in terms of the vaccine rollout. And, you know, obviously um, the, the richest countries have um, rather dominated and, and in fact to a sort of quite shocking level um, the uh, delivery of vaccine rollout. And um, this was true in, in the summer that I think um, less than 2% of African, of the, Af of the population of the African continent had had even just a first dose. Um, and actually that number hasn't moved as much as you might hope um, all these months later. And the third uh, depressing story, <laughs> sorry, uh, that I thought um, from a UK point of view um, was the murder of Sarah Everard and um, the sort of conversation that resulted in and the focus on male violence against women. Um, now, obviously, uh, unfortunately, women are murdered all over the world and in the UK, um, you know, with uh, alarming regularity. Um, and this was a particular kind of murder that's actually more rare. It, you know, it was a stranger murdering um, someone. But for that reason... And because Sarah Everard appeared, I think, to be doing a lot of sort of the so-called right things. Um, uh, you know, she was going along a main road. Um, you know, she, he, the, the man involved, Wayne Cousins, was a police officer. I think this story really um, sort of got coverage in a way that ordinarily uh, these things, are unfortunately and wrongly, are treated as sort of just what happens. And this one led to a much broader conversation around the issues of, of safety, uh, but particularly around male violence and what we can do to stop them. But what I'd say unites uh, both the English Channel disaster and that story in terms of the media is the sad thing is quite how quickly we move on. Um, and um, as a media editor, with my media editor hat on, the thing that I find very um, a little bit depressing is, is, you know, we need to have a broader conversation about finding solutions rather than um, what sort of happens is we focus very quickly on an issue and then, oh, there's something else the next day or, or the next week. So um, what I would be hoping for is um, that we can sort of uh, have a broader conversation around solutions um, to some of those issues. Well, thanks, Ros. Um, I feel wearing a uh, elf top is particularly inappropriate <laughs> given the list that you've shared with us. I think there is a theme though, isn't there, Ros? And that's authority. Hmm. In the sense that in each of these cases, there's a question about our trust in authority. So for many people, the failure of the French and the British authorities to deal with the migrant crisis, and that's from some people who think to deal with it in a humane way and for others to deal with it in a kind of law and order kind of sense, then vaccines is a rare example. And obviously Boris Johnson is right now trying to kind of emphasise that that's a, a success story for the government. The government has shown its kind of competence when it comes to vaccines on the whole. And then the Sarah Everard story is part of a number of stories that have been highly problematic for the Met, uh, another kind of source of authority. So I guess spinning them together, Ros, and we speak with, you know, government assailed on all sides at the moment. 
What do you think COVID has done for our sense of authority? Has it made us even less trusting of those in power? At the beginning of COVID, it looked like it was the reverse. Most governments in power became more popular, didn't they, in the early months of COVID? We kind of leaned on those in authority. But have we just gone back to our usual surly ways or has it even got worse? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is despite all the opposition to the lockdown measures all along, the polling on it has been really, really strongly in 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 favour of them. Um, you know, in in favour of tougher lockdowns. You know, there was one poll that said um, that people would be very happy if nightclubs never ever reopened. There was a chunk of the population, and it was something like one in five people. I can't quite remember the, the exact numbers, but you know, after COVID, because they were a transmission risk. I mean, sort of the ultimate killjoy thing. You may not want ever to go to a nightclub ever again, of course, but the idea that other people shouldn't be allowed to. So um, I think what's interesting to me is right at the beginning, absolutely. And and actually the measures, even now when, you know, there's a lot of obviously backbench and conservative opposition to further lockdown measures of any kind, you know, working from home and, and so on. Um, that we're all clearly having to do now. Um, but uh, but but actually, I think the problem, particularly in the UK, is this element of hypocrisy. So, I mean, it strikes me. So a year ago, I was in hospital giving birth to my son. And my husband, obviously, was the hours he was allowed to be there were incredibly restricted. Um, because, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of safety mechanism, right? And, and it was, you know, to stop transmission. And at the same time, <laughs> a year ago, uh, various members of the Conservative um, Party allegedly were attending uh, parties in number 10 and, and, and other departments. And so I think that's what's chipped away at authority is this problem that it looks so much like, and of course my, my problem is, you know, small compared with people who, who've lost relatives that they couldn't visit or any of those things. Um, but it feels like a lot of us have sacrificed so much and it only bonds you together if everyone else is doing it, right? If it turns out, oh wait, the government was all along not doing the things that it was imposing upon us, then of course their authority is destroyed. Um, you know, nothing sort of chips away at that more than the stench of hypocrisy. And I think we've had that sort of repeatedly now. The interesting point about the vaccine rollout, I would say is, isn't that really a success for the NHS? And one thing that the NHS could actually do incredibly well because of the nature of the NHS and the way it's structured made a vaccine rollout program actually quite easy compared with countries that don't have that. Um, I mean, not saying it was easier, obviously it was an incredible achievement still, but comparatively easier in countries that don't have that structure. And also that while you've talked about political authority being chipped away, do we not think the authority of the NHS in this country remains a sort of weird form of soft power, right? You know, who have we, who did we clap for in the beginning? NHS workers, obviously deservedly, but I think there is a thing where when, and, and actually this comes back to polling again, when you poll people on who they trust, doctors unsurprisingly come up really, really high. Um, and, and yeah, and so I think there is a, a sort of success thing there that isn't really that much about government, it's a bit about government, but there are other things in place that made that, uh, you know, slightly better, you know, made the UK able at the start, at least, to be a leader. Of course, we quickly got overtaken by other countries, actually. Um, well, Ros, great. And uh, how wonderful for you to end up on such a positive note about uh, the NHS. So uh, Ros has raised issues here around kind of social compliance, around authority uh, and uh, 
we have no better person to speak on such issues of kind of psychology and, and collective action than Ian Leslie. My old friend Ian is a journalist and author of many best-selling books on human behaviour, including his latest book, Conflict, which has been lauded by everyone from Harlan Copen to Malcolm Gladwell. It featured on the RSA's Bridges to the Future podcast earlier this year. I can strongly uh, recommend it. He writes, Ian writes about psychology, culture, technology and business, the New Statesman, The Economist, The Guardian, The Financial Times. And a while ago, he and I even co-hosted a podcast together. So, Ian, uh, welcome. Uh, what a point! What what are the key lessons of twenty twenty one that you're going to share with us? Um, okay, so I, uh, one of the key, at least the key events. I'm not sure what the lessons are, but we we can discuss this. To my mind, was the uh, botched uh, attempt at a super league by the European football authorities, um, which uh, after after the Euros, we can actually talk about the Euros as well if, if we like, because obviously there was. A lot to talk about there in terms of England's extraordinary pro progress, some of the controversy around taking the knee and, and where we ended up on, on that. Um, but then, yeah, shortly afterwards, we had this um, proposed uh, sort of abolition of domestic leagues and, uh, well, not abolition, but for the, the best teams in, in the biggest countries to, to form a super league. Um, and it was felled by a kind of bottom-up, revolt of, of fans, particularly in this country, actually. And I thought it was really interesting for, for one or two reasons. One is that, yeah, that if you talk to journalists who cover other European football nations, they said, yeah, people weren't that, people were a bit puzzled and not that pleased about it. And there were some protests, but the, the fans who were really upset about it were, were the British fans. And it's interesting that Britain seems to have a peculiarly strong attachment to its kind of local traditions and local cultures, which obviously is connected to um, certain other events that have happened in the last in the last few years. Um, so uh, yeah, going back to your, your your kind of emerging theme about authority here, you had um, the elites trying to impose something. Um, in, in terms of the world of sport on, on the masses and the masses saying we're not having it. And the elites, by the way, handling it incredibly badly. You know, if you ever needed reminding that elites can be stupid, you know, these highly qualified, um, very highly uh, accomplished, credentialed people just making a complete cock up of this, um, then, then here's, here's a reminder. Um, so and then I had a couple of th other things on my list, um, but you know, obviously we've got what a lot to talk talk about. I, I just thought, you know, maybe we should mention the reopening, um, uh, particularly from July onwards, where there was a real touch and go, big decision about whether or not we should go th through with close to full reopening, um, and the fact that we are, because it's easy to forget this, particularly now Omnicom's happening, um, we're a lot further ahead than we thought we would be a year ago. Um, we're in a much better place than we thought we would be a year ago. Um, and um, I just think that's worth kind of kind of noting. I mean, I feared a lot worse a year, a year and, a, and all sorts of things that could have happened have not happened. So although we are far from a, in a perfect world uh, with regard to the pandemic, I think it, you know, it's worth noting it could have been a lot worse. Um, and then the third event, which might be just me um, in, in, in our, on our panel, um, was the release of the Beatles um, mini-series, Get Back, uh, directed by Peter Jackson, um, which is a hugely kind of um, 
a joyous cultural event for, for, for many of us. Well, Ian, thank you for bringing a bit of culture in. That's great to hear. Now, I'm going to delve this football issue a bit with you. So uh, first of all, uh, I'll say something I heard a few weeks ago, which rather kind of shattered the, the very kind of positive interpretation I'd had of our resistance to European Super League, which was that, if you remember, the players didn't like the idea very much either. And apparently this is because they knew that the European Super League would mean a wage cap and they weren't in favour of that uh, at all. And I don't know whether that's true, just int introducing a note of cynicism. But on football, and I'm going to get to the point here in a moment, but on football, um, I'm having a conversation with, 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 with people recently about, you know, the fact that the Premier League's uh, test of whether or not a, an owner of a club is fit and proper is, is pretty thin, let's face it. Uh, I support West Bromwich Albion, who nobody really knows who owns them. And they were bought when we were in the Premier League. There's no serious attempt at, at, uh, at a test of whether or not it's fit and proper. And then, of course, we've got the takeover of Newcastle United. Anyway, I was chatting to somebody who knows a lot about football, uh, and I said, you know, why is it that 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 there doesn't seem to be any real enthusiasm for kind of cleaning up the Premier League? They'll take money from wherever they want to. And he said, you have to understand that the EPL, as it's known globally, uh, has now got the same brand recognition as the BBC. That one in five people globally, over a billion people globally, watch a English Premier League match at least one match a season. It is for a country which is seen to be in decline, defeated run by a rather peculiar person. It is the only thing, really, about uh, England which is uh, being exported positively right now. So the idea that we're going to stand in the way of the Premier League taking money from whoever they can and seeking to dominate the world is preposterous. We will support them just like we would have supported British aerospace in, you know, potentially dodgy dealings in the past. So uh, in the end, isn't the football story that, you know, it's, it's problematic in lots of ways, but, you know, we have got the best league in the world and we'll do anything we can to keep it. Yeah, and, but I also think it's it's interesting that um, the the fan bases of these clubs are still so passionate um, and and are so passionately attached to their local club, right? Because we, we we often hear, understandably, that clubs have lost all attachment to to their local uh, um, area, and this is they've really become global brands and they care more about their fans in, in India and, you know, wherever around the world, uh, America. Now that might be true of some of the managers management of those clubs, but actually when it, when it comes down to the crunch, those fans, the ones who turn up to the stadiums every week when they're allowed to um, are the ones who really do count. And they, and they still have a very strong attachment to, to the, the premier league um, and to, to English football. Um, and the fact that that attachment is even stronger here than it is in other countries, I, um, I, I think is, is really interesting. We are, you know, it, you, you put it in a negative sense that we're quite a kind of inward looking parochial country in some ways. Um, but in a positive sense, I, I like the sense of um, not being prepared to kind of give up all our local traditions and local cultures um, to some kind of big global uh, bland behemoth. Um, so I, I found it actually quite um, an inspiring kind of revolt against the, uh, the faceless bureaucrats. I'm starting to sound like a Brexiteer now, that's great. 
even though virtually nobody who plays for any of these teams has got any local connections at all. But anyway, we'll, we might, and this is in, I, there's an interesting conversation here to be had about place and the irrationalities for place and the emotion of place. We maybe come back to that in a minute. But I want to bring in our third guest, Hardeep Masaru. Hardeep is the editor of the new independent investigative newspaper, The Byline Times. The paper focuses on highlighting stories the mainstream media can't or won't. And in a couple of years, has amassed over 100,000 followers on Twitter. Prior to leading at Byline, Hardeep had a decade's experience across local national independent media and completed a law degree at Cambridge. So thank you for joining us, Hardeep. What... I mean, you've got a lot to choose from, from what Roz and Ian have said. They've covered a, a, a huge array of different issues. So uh, w- what are you going to choose as the memorable elements of 2021? Thank you, Matthew. So I wanted to highlight three sort of stories or moments that I thought uh, held a mirror up to the country and actually, you know, sort of got people thinking more broadly about some deeper questions. A lot of the work that I try to do at Byline Times, of course we do, there is is about looking at some of the structural issues. So we don't follow a news cycle and just report on sort of more and more events that are happening. We try to look at some of the reasons why these things are happening. So the first development, uh, which I think sort of held a mirror up and uh, brought up some interesting questions, was uh, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle. So this year, they were very vocal about why they stepped back from royal duties, uh, why they moved to America. And quite memorably, they did this very high-profile interview uh, in America with Oprah Winfrey. And I don't pick this moment because for its celebrity um, or to, to discuss the ins and outs of what was what was being claimed about their experience and, and what happened. It's, it's not about that, but merely to draw attention to the fact that we don't really talk about our monarchy, our royal family, and yet the Queen is head of state. Constitutionally, it's a very important role. We saw in previous years where Parliament was prorogued, uh, sort of that interplay between the, you know, the government and the monarchy and, and how that, that worked out. This has also been a difficult year for the royal family. I think Prince Philip passed away, and there are questions around how it can move into uh, move with the times, I think. But I just think it's interesting that we never really look at sort of the things that underline the monarchy and the royal family. And it it's meant to sort of, I guess, notionally be the symbolic family that we feel connected to and that we relate to in some way as representing something of us. And I, again, I think Harry and Meghan's sort of story and experiences and claims uh, really, really shed some light on some of these deeper issues, including, you know, how, how diverse it is, including notions of what it's built on, you know, empire. And also, I think Harry also mentioned this invisible contract, as he termed it, that exists between the monarchy or the royal family and the press. You know, both are invested to a large extent in creating narratives and stories about our country. So I just thought that was an interesting moment. And it was it's also interesting, I think, uh, our, our sort of the country's reaction to uh, Meghan in particular, uh, I think that's really interesting. I think that raises more questions and holds up a mirror to ourselves, or it should, than than about her necessarily. And the second moment following on from that that I thought was really interesting was, I mean, Ian alluded to it, it's uh, Euro 2020, this extraordinary moment where I think the whole country was really united. I mean, England, the England team reached the finals of this tournament 
And again, I think it was a moment that really held up a mirror because the other thing we don't really talk about uh, in, in this country is Englishness as opposed to Britishness, Englishness in particular. And I think this team led by Gareth Southgate, a very diverse team, uh, you know, very committed to uh, standing up against uh, structural inequalities, including racism, taking the knee, but also the great camaraderie between them. It seemed to me that they represented a, a new generation, you know, something younger and something more inclusive. And again, I think it was interesting what the questions that raised about uh, the English identity. And of course, uh, there was an extraordinary moment, I thought, when uh, after the final, when the three penalties had been missed uh, by the three players who were, who were Black, uh, there was racism targeted towards them. And at that point, the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister called this out. I mean, in particular, Priti Patel said that was very wrong. Uh, and Tyrone Mings, who is one of the England players, said, well, you call this gesture politics, so uh, you've got to look at the consequences of calling at that, calling these sands uh, gesture politics because of the consequences. I think it was an incredible moment where I think the government's sort of so-called cultural war and sort of uh, amping up of, you know, very kind of divisive rhetoric at times around race and identity. I thought that was a really, there was a lot of truth in that moment. There was some collision which illuminated something. And the final moment for me, which I thought was very interesting, came last month. Uh, during COP26, so on a global stage, uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, felt the need to reiterate that Britain is not a remotely corrupt country. And the reason I thought I, want, I would say this as, as a moment that I thought was significant is because we don't, again, the other thing we don't really talk about is corruption. Now, corruption isn't you know, just with a capital C. There is, there is a mode of uh, corrupting behavior of the system which governs the way we live, in our case, democracy. And certainly the work of, I mean, those comments were made by Boris Johnson in the wake of, I think the Owen Patterson affair was still going on. Uh, and subsequently to that, and since, and, and before, we've seen numerous sort of government policies, which arguably restrict uh, civil liberties and, and rights. So whether that's protest laws, this notion of rescinding uh, British citizenship, uh, plan you know, reports to undermine the rule of law and judicial review, and of course just uh, the normalization of an environment in which lies or mistruths don't seem to matter anymore. And I think it was a really interesting moment because we corrupt, so Byline Times did a lot of work, and I would say it sort of led the way before the, the mainstream media got involved on exposing, for example, the cronyism around uh, the award of government contracts during the coronavirus crisis where the proper, you know, the usual procedures were set aside because it was an emergency. And what we found out was billions of pounds have gone to associates and supporters of the Conservative Party. So all of these things, I think, and of course, uh, what's emerged in the last week about the Christmas parties. So I think it's really interesting. We never really ask searching questions of um, corruption uh, within the British state or within our political processes. It's a process. It's not something that comes with one smoking gun and a capital C. It's, it's a process. It's, it's an idea. It's a way of being. And I think that we're always keen to say, uh, point to other countries and say, well, they're corrupt. We're not like that. But the last point I'll make is I do think it's interesting that, you know, for example, India today, 
uh, under Narendra Modi, uh, the response to the coronavirus crisis, the second wave was absolutely devastating. I lost two out of my three uncles within five days of each other. And I d- it's interesting why a country like India, after so you know a significant period of British rule, is, is, has ended up in part so, so corrupt. Is that because Britain was there or because we're not there any longer? So I just think all these three moments for me highlighted some really interesting, deeper, wider questions, which I think we could all do in this country with reflecting on a bit more. Audit, that's great. Um, I'm going to ask you a question in a second, but I'm just preparing the rest of the panel. What we're going to do after I've just chatted to Hardy, please, I'm going to give you three quick fire questions for each of you um, to tell us what you think about whether it's been a good or a bad year in, in, in each of these areas. But before I do that, Hardy, if I want to follow up on that, it was fascinating what you said. I, I want to follow up on this question of, of corruption and accountability. So until the sleaze stuff really took off, um, a few months ago, I had got to the stage where I just felt we'd abandoned any notion of accountability. It felt to me as though the whole country had just got to the stage of going, well, you know, so what? You know, we, we don't expect anything other than lies and low-level corruption, and we're bored with uh, accountability. Now, that seems to change in the last... Suddenly, we, we, we care about accountability, we care about honesty, we care about hypocrisy again, how do you interpret that, Hardy? Yeah, I think you're it's absolutely right, Matthew. I think, you know, to my mind, it's it's quite extraordinary that after the coronavirus, you know, we've had the coronavirus crisis and, you know, arguably, or maybe it's not that arguable, the mismanagement around it. You know, we have a very high death toll in this country. We have the consequence of Brexit still playing out. They have been playing out. I think we've all seen that uh, in our day-to-day lives. And it's quite hard Brexit, you know, uh, but not necessarily the thing that was promised to us. Uh, the cronyism and all this, but none of these scandals or sort of issues have captured the public mood, as you say, insofar as accountability. Um, as these recent ones about the Owen Patterson affair and, of course, the the Christmas parties. I think what, to some extent, what underlines a lot of this is, again, the thing we don't really look at, which is our systems. We have an unwritten constitution and largely, you know, to some... it's a system that relies on sort of good chaps being in power. You know, we're reliant on norms and conventions. Uh, we don't have a codified constitution. And so it's what, what happens when people get into power in that system who do have a very flexible uh, relationship with the truth, who aren't willing to play the play by the rules as everyone else has who have come before. And so I think this sort of notion of good chaps government uh, it's it's it shows the vulnerabilities of our democratic system and i think some of the issues of accountability with some of these bigger issues which are so huge you know brexit covid um, really highlight that but i think what's happened recently is we've had a few concrete examples of very um clear clear moments in which the public at large has felt that this just this just isn't right. You know, there is no accountability and the people who are setting the rules are not sort of uh, abiding by them. And they see the, you know, the corrosiveness in their own lives. You know, people had to abide by lockdown rules and couldn't see their families. They couldn't be with dying relatives. I think it's all become a bit more immediate. But the, the one last thing I will say, Matthew, is the role of the, the mainstream media in this. You know, so the media is very powerful. And when it went, wants to hold 
government to account, as we've seen in the last two weeks, it really, really can. But certainly at Byline Times, the other thing that we do examine is is the media and its power because it's it has a lot of power and um, we need to be scrutinizing the media we do need to be scrutinizing when it decides to run with a story and the broadcasters pick up on it and when it doesn't because that has an impact you know in in a democracy uh, journalism truly independent journalism which holds government to account is a key part of democracy it should be and we again in our in this country need to ask ourselves why where's that relationship between the press the public and the media sitting in between yeah great point i did that point about what why does something become a story and something else not become a story okay now listen you three you've been brilliant uh but now this is where the pressure starts we've got nine minutes and I'm going to ask you each three questions uh, and you've got one minute to give your answer and justify it. So none of you talked about climate change, which is pretty remarkable, actually. So we'll start with that. Uh, and I'm going to start with you, Roz. Climate change. Are we in a better or a worse position than we were at the beginning of the year? What's your answer and what's your justification? Over to you, Roz. Uh, worse. I, I only didn't speak about climate change because I thought someone else would. I genuinely wrote that in my list. <laughs> Oh, uh, I think worse because, okay, COP, you know, we got a fudge. It, it could have been better, clearly, um, the deal that, that came away. But, um, but, but, it, but some, some progress is made, particularly on certain issues. But the big problem is it's sort of like, you know, we've got the, the, we're putting a little bucket under the, you know, under the drip. And actually, there's loads of water upstairs and it's all going to crash down on us. I mean, we are ever getting closer to something that is fairly catastrophic well not fairly catastrophic that is catastrophic and um and we are sort of doing the tiny little things around the side uh one thing that struck me is lockdown when you looked at the emissions that were reduced you know it was so little and we changed our lives completely you know we stopped you know transport was reduced all those things and that tells you how vast the change we need is, I think. Although obviously certain things like actually working from home does actually use up quite a lot of power and so on. But, um, but you know, the change we need is vast and um, we are so far from it. Ian, uh, pessimistic from Ros on climate change, better or worse this year than we were this time last year? Okay, well, <clears throat> just for the sake of um, contrast, I'll, I'll give you a more optimistic view. Um, I actually thought that COP26 was uh, as much about the discussions with business as it was between states. And the reason to be optimistic, um, if there is one, on climate change is that you are seeing an enormous and, and fast change um, in terms of uh, flows of capital into renewable energy and out of fossil fuels. Um, you're actually seeing business, the investment community actually responding with quite a lot of speed and alacrity as they tend to do once they start to sniff profits um, and into new, new forms of energy. And I think that as much as anything, as much as any government action is gonna drive change and innovation um, in the right direction in the next few years. Well, Hardeep, you're, you're in the Judge Shirley position now, which is Ros has been pessimistic, Ian's been optimistic. You are the, you're gonna be the deciding vote on this. Uh, both good points. I think that, for, in my opinion, yeah, COP20, COP26 was disappointing. I think the fact that we 
had the presidency, Britain, there was so much we could have done, a lot of work we could have done behind the scenes uh, leading up to it, which I think would have perhaps got some more concrete outcomes. Uh, I I mean, again, for me, what I highlight in terms of our own government is the gap between the, the sort of rhetoric or the commitments uh, and and then government policy, you know, in many, many ways, not just individual ministers and the way they voted, but sort of the government as a whole, we need to be looking at what policies it's still putting its, its strength behind when it comes to climate. We've also had interesting developments, I think, on a small, you know, on a small scale in Britain about, uh, you know, various sort of protest movements in state Britain and debates around that. Uh, I think it's interesting to evaluate to what extent they have been successful or are capturing the public mood or perhaps alienating it and therefore what the way forward may be. But I, I would sort of go for negative, unfortunately. OK, so uh, Ian, you like me, uh, you belong to the Club of Centrist Dads. So the question for you is, is the Labour Party back uh, a genuine and viable uh, a competitor in the next uh, election, or in the end, are they still in the wilderness? Um, I think they are not fully back yet. I think Keir Starmer has a lot more work to do to prove that he is a dynamic and energetic and forward-looking leader. However, I do think they are in a strong enough position to make the Tories worried about what's going to happen at the next election, which, you know, just hasn't been true for quite a long time. Um, and I think the recent shadow cabinet change was badly handled for a few reasons, but I think the result was a real upgrade in terms of the talent on the front bench. Suddenly, you, you see people like Wes Streeting and, and Yvette Cooper and, important, and Rachel Reeves and important jobs was there already, of course, but that team, it now starts to feel like there is now a, a government in waiting in a way that I hadn't really felt that before. Um, so um, I think there's some way to go, but I think they're on the right path. OK, so uh, Hardy, Bian's given the Labour Party a kind of tentative thumbs up in terms of being back in play. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it's been in a real pickle, to be honest, hasn't it? Because it hasn't really sort of at the start of the year and all throughout it, it sort of I feel like it hasn't wanted to mention Brexit, even as some of the uh, effects of that have been playing out. So it's sort of in a bind with regards to its particular electoral coalition and how it sort of recaptures that. But I do think it's been more positive, uh, especially in, in recent weeks. I think these sort of scandals of lobbying and corruption or whatever you lack of truth uh, has has finally been capitalized on i think that moment in last week's prime minister's questions questions when keir starmer he's really using the term you know moral authority moral authority does does this leader boris johnson have that and i think there is a, there is a clearer contrast emerging uh, between keir starmer and johnson in the minds of the public whether that will go to war, you know, go the way in favour of Starmer. Uh, it remains to be seen, but I think there's now a clearer distinction and maybe that contrast is is, is a good one for voters to have because it is quite different, I would say. 
So, Ross, that's two two tentative votes for Labour. You're going on. I mean, when I say votes for Labour, votes for Labour being viable again. Do you agree? <laughs> uh, I think one big problem that hasn't been mentioned here is Scotland, because don't forget when they were delivering big majorities, they were winning an awful lot of seats in Scotland that they no longer have, and that they don't have an easy path back to winning. Um, so, in, and you know that does actually. You know, the SNP having such dominance there may shift at some point, of course. But at the moment, that's a real electoral block for um, for Labour. Um, I think Keir Starmer actually, I'm, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm actually slightly rare voice. I actually think he's doing a really good job. There's a lot of criticism. Oh, he's too boring. I mean, next to Boris, don't Boris Johnson, don't people want boring? I mean, I, I think the challenge will be if Boris Johnson is not the Conservative leader at the next election. And, you know, we're looking at a possibility that he might not be now. And for a long time, obviously, he was such an electoral um, force for the Conservative Party. But but now has that not been really chipped away at? And if you were offered Rishi Sunak or someone like that, it's perfectly possible incidentally that it won't be Rishi Sunak, but were it him versus Keir Starmer, that gap closes again on the sort of... Um, the moral question, I guess. I mean, the thing about Boris Johnson having another child, it, it, it made me laugh because in all the, well, in all the papers bar the Telegraph, they have now used, started using the phrasing that I actually used a while ago, which was at least X children. Now, how on earth can we have a leader who can't even tell us how many children they have? I mean, I find it rather extraordinary. And I do think those things eventually, I mean, Boris Johnson's always had a form of exceptionalism when none of that sort of personal stuff mattered in the Conservative Party, you know, that should be of family values and Conservative values with a small C. Um, but I think that exceptionalism is, is dying. Right. So we now come on to the critical question, one that I'm amazed that none of you have mentioned, and you're all going to have literally 30 seconds to answer this. So uh, in the final of Strictly, we will have, we have a gay couple a uh, profoundly deaf woman uh, and a black working class woman from the north of England. So the two questions are this. First of all, does Strictly demonstrate the culture wars are over and the progressives have won? Or is it just a bit of Saturday night fluff? And secondly, who's going to win? So, uh, Hardeep, you're going first. Oh, I haven't been following it. So no. I don't know who's going to win. I don't know. But is it is it sort of cutting through the culture war? I, I do think it's a, a really great to see the national broadcaster, the BBC, sort of, uh, you know, having a lot more diversity in all ways uh, in its in its primetime shows. I think that's really, really important. And I think it's more where the public are broadly. Uh, but I don't know who's going to win. No idea. Well, you have to watch. You'll have to watch. Uh, uh, Roz, uh, uh, culture war. Does it show the culture wars are over? A bit of fluff, and who's going to win? So I'll do who's going to win first. Um, Rose Ailing Ellis, she's utterly charming, and I think the dance she did when the music stopped. Obviously, she's deaf. Uh, she's an EastEnders actress. Um, she, I think, when the music stopped and she covered the ears of her dancing partner and danced suddenly. It, it, I, I don't know. It was, quite, it was just really moving. And I don't watch. I don't watch the show normally, but I do catch up. You know, media sort of have to vaguely know what's going on. Um, broader point about BBC. Uh, the BBC centenary next year. Um, you know, has not had an easy. You know, has obviously has um, a new boss, but uh, has, he's had a very tough ride for the last year and a bit. Um, and I think the BBC 
you know, is hugely aware and scared of a lot of these culture wars things, but that doesn't apply so much to the entertainment side. And I think the point that they should take from this and the BBC should think about more broadly is that it shows the country, they like, they like people with a good story, you know, they, they want to enjoy a diverse, you know, that's what they want to see on a Saturday night. And I think the BBC should probably take a look at that and think, actually, there's a lot to be really positive about here and we shouldn't get too um, embroiled in culture wars. So, Ian, it's appropriate to end with you because I think your your love of the BBC is secondary to your love of the Beatles. So uh, the significance of Strictly and who do you think is going to win? Um I, I, I agree with Roz. I, I think and I, I hope that Rose will win, um, not least because she, she's my daughter's favourite. So uh, I want my daughter to be happy. Um, so um, I, I do I think it's significant? Yeah, you know, I, I think it is. I mean, I think it just represents and embodies the fact that this is a fundamentally liberal country um, with a small L. Uh, this is a country that, that uh, a accommodates and accepts difference remarkably well um, compared to compared to countries. Um, and so I, I think that warm fuzzy feeling that we get when we see Strictly like this um, is not nothing. Um, we should feel good about it. And just generally, I think both left and right when it comes to the culture wars to just chill out a bit. Um, you know, we, we are a, a, a good country. Let's keep being self-critical. But let's also at the same time recognize that we've got a lot to be proud of when it comes to diversity and inclusion um, and, and, and acceptance. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for um, the, the, the strictly message of Christmas cheer. Well, how wonderful that we've ended on such a positive note. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Um, it's been a fantastic session, a year of amazing RSA events. Thanks for watching. Uh, Roz, Ian Hardy, thank you for what's been a wonderfully wide-ranging and great fun conversation. Goodbye from all of us and have a safe and happy holiday. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.